Fred Wesley said Philadelphia International was funk with a bow tie, he was describing more than just the polished production values of the record label. Now, whereas James Brown's funk was designed for the street, the Philadelphia sound was the music of people who wanted to dress up in expensive, fashionable clothes and go to expensive, fashionable clubs, but nevertheless, get funky. Having gone through the process of integration and the social advancement made possible in the 1960s, black America in the 1970s wanted music to reflect their new affluence and class. Because of this difference of purpose, the Philly sound used orchestral instruments in a more expansive way to produce a more polished, sophisticated sound. Rhythm sections, instead of being small units playing repetitive vamps, expanded to include a variety of percussion instruments, negotiating the more complex harmonic progressions of jazz and Tin Pan Alley. Producer-songwriters Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff formed Philadelphia International Records, known as PIR. They evolved a new genre that became known as the Sound of Philadelphia. PIR took over from Motown as the preeminent black music label of the 70s, with many hit artists, including the OJs, The Intruders, Billy Paul, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Teddy Pendergrass, The Three Degrees, Archie Bell and the Drells, McFadden and Whitehead, and Lou Rawls. I interviewed producer, songwriter, and arranger Bobby Eli for my book, The Invisible Artist, in 2008. Now, Bobby was a member of Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, playing guitar on many of the most successful PIR hits of the 70s, working with their biggest artists and most significant arrangers. As a founder member of the PIR team, Bobby was able to give us an articulate and detailed understanding of the genesis and history of the Philadelphia sound, and here, for the first time, is our complete interview. Check it out. Bobby, it's great to meet you on the phone. Oh, it's great to meet you too as well, Richard. One of the main things that you, more than anybody else could do for us, is explain what the essential elements of the Philadelphia sound are. Okay, I'll be glad to. Philadelphia has always been a hybrid of sounds emanating from various neighborhoods, with each neighborhood being indigenous to a specific type of sound. For example, South Philly gave birth to all the teen idols, such as Fabian, Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, Chubby Checker, etc. Southwest Philly gave birth to the smooth doo-wop sounds, such as Lee Andrews and the Hearts, the Superiors, groups like that. North Philly was a little harder-edged, you had Howard Tate, you had Garnett Mims, The Intruders. There was also doo-wop, a doo-wop element, but a little bit of a harder-edged doo-wop, you know. And West Philly was a hybrid of all the above. You know, you had Solomon Burke out of West Philly. Uh, you had the Dovells, you know, which were Blue-Eyed Soul. Daryl Hall, who actually came from Pottstown, which was a northwest suburb of Philadelphia. So you had all that put into a melting pot of a, of a big musical stew, and there you have it, you know. I guess the uh, seeds of what 
we came to know as the Philly sound, the soulful sound of the Philly sound anyway, the soulful element, started with the Dixie Hummingbirds, you know, back in the 30s with their, with their gospel roots, with their, their chicken and grits uh, part of this musical stew that we're talking about. And uh, later on down the line, in the early 50s, we had a, a company called Grand Records, which was based in West Philly, around 41st and Lancaster, which was known then as The Bottom. Grand Records uh, gave birth to a group called the Castells, who had a big uh, regional hit called My Girl Awaits Me. This was around maybe 53, 54, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. All right, this was like, that had to be one of the first soulful Philadelphia records, I guess you could say. All right, now, right around that time, you had the Revels. Around 1955, had a song called Cha Cha Tony, which led to a song called Midnight Stroll, you know, which was one of the first uh, records of that type to be featured on American Bandstand. Okay, now, right around that time, Lee Andrews and the Heart started getting hits with the Try the Impossible, Teardrops, Long Lonely Nights. This was the early Philadelphia doo-wop soul sound. Okay, now... Let's fast track to around. We'll fast track to around 1961. The city of Camden, New Jersey, which is right across the bridge, the Delaware River from Philadelphia. There was a young gentleman named Leon Huff. Mm. Leon Huff used to play his piano in church. I was fortunate to go to one of these church sessions on several occasions and witness firsthand his 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 feel, his gospel feel on the piano, and it amazed me. And I got to know him, and I used to, I was invited to go to his home, and we got to hang out, and and it was great. Okay, right after that, I started playing with a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Herb Johnson. We formed a group called Herb Johnson and the Impacts, and we would work around all around Philadelphia at the time. And there was a little club in in West Philly called uh, the Vegas Bar. And we were like a fixture over there in that club. And there there was a guy that used to come in there named Kenny. Kenny was, uh, you know, a struggling singer-songwriter in the neighborhood who also was a, uh, a lab technician at this place called Mr. Recordia Hospital. So Kenny used to always say, hey, Eli, can I get up on the stage and sing a couple numbers? And I said, why, certainly. <laughs> and this Kenny turned out to be the one and only Kenny Gamble. <laughs> okay, so... Kenny had a, a knack. He always had this little specific knack for coming up with, uh, you know, really great ideas. And we became, we became fast friends at that particular time. We're going to fast forward maybe three years. Okay, one day I was at Leon Huff's house hanging out, and I had a, a group with me that we were rehearsing with. And um, I heard Huff on the phone speaking to someone, and he uh, had mentioned, uh, quote-unquote, he said, hey, Huff, there's this bad white boy over here on a guitar, you know? His name is Bobby Eli, man. You should hear him. So apparently the retort from Gamble uh, apparently was the fact that he knew me. And the one thing led to another, and right around that time they were starting to get their writing and producing thing together, right in, at the very beginning. So from that point on, I was elected to be part of their fledgling uh, operation and one of the guys in the studio that later became known as MFSB. Mm. And uh, actually, a year before that, befriended a, a, a very nice guy who I know and am very tight with to this day, 
named Weldon Arthur McDougall III, and that's what he likes to be called, the third. So anyway, he actually uh, met me one day while I was waiting for the bus coming out of school with my guitar and says, hey man, can you play that thing? I says, why certainly. You know, I've been told that I can play it. He says, oh yeah? Well, I'm going to the studio right now for a session. You want to come along? And I said, why, yeah, why not? You know, I was kind of trepidatious at first. And, you know, my mom told me to watch out for strangers and long Cadillac sedans. And <laughs> I said, well, all right, I'll give it a shot. Went up to the studio. It was called Virtue Recording on North Broad Street, which recently was torn down, and there's a parking lot there. In any event, I went up there, and there was a, he was recording... Uh, he had a group called the Larks, and they were recording a song called Rain. And anyway, he said, hey, man, take your guitar out. Let me see what you can do. He has a deep bass voice, better than mine. So anyway, I said, okay. I had this red Gibson guitar. I took it out and started strumming along. And he says, oh, man, you sound good, man. You sound good. Let me, l- let me you know, keep playing. So then he had these girls over there he was getting ready to record. They were called the Tiffany's. And they had this song called Gossip. And he says, hey, man, could you do something with that? I says, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So, so I did something with that, too. And uh, he started taking me around to the studios, and he introduced me to a guy called Jimmy Bishop, who had just come in from Detroit uh, to get a job at WDAS Radio in Philadelphia. So Jimmy Bishop, in conjunction with Weldon, and uh, two more guys called Johnny Styles and Luther Randolph, started a company called Dino Dynamic Productions, which was based in West Philly. And uh, the first artist that they signed to Dino Dynamic was a young lady from North Philly. Her name is Barbara Mason. Barbara Mason used to live in, in North Philly around the corner from my, my lady friend Bonnie. Okay, there was a young lady called Kissy who lived in Richard Allen Holmes. Kissy was a, who lived next door to one of the Larks, whose name was Bill Oxendine. And anyway, one thing led to another, and a recommendation was made to Weldon McDougall that, hey, man, you should hear this girl, Barbara. She can play the piano and write songs. One day at Virtue Studios, an appointment was made to uh, bring Barbara up to the studio, and uh, she was running late. Weldon had to go down to the projects to pick her up. Her and Kissy came up there, and uh, anyway, Weldon said, Barbara, sit down at the piano. Let me hear some of your songs. So the first one that she did was a song called Girls Have Feelings Too which was actually the very first release on uh, a label called Crusader out of California. Next session uh, was the one that produced Yes, I'm Ready, Mm -hmm. our very first smash. Weldon, we were talking about musicians and uh, upgrading the embodiment of the rhythm section that was happening at that time because prior to our little hookup... So anyway, I recommended an old friend of mine called Ronnie Baker... Uh, bass player, Ronnie came over and uh, the first session that he played on was was Yes, I'm Ready. Ronnie suggested uh, guitarist Norman Harris um, and Yes, I'm Ready was the first song that he played on. We were doing a a session with the Volcanoes. I think it was Storm Warning and um, that particular drummer, Skip, didn't show up. But there was a gentleman in the corner by the name of Earl who was actually a bass singer. And uh, Earl says, uh, well, if Skip doesn't show up, uh, let me try that. Let me see if I could do it. So Earl sat down on the drums, man, and he had the most impeccable timing one could ever ask for. He was like a human metronome, and he dug in and played so hard, man. You know, and hey, that was actually 
the real, I guess, birth of uh, our rhythm section right there, MFSB. Now, would there be an arranger on that session or somebody who would be yes. kind of like the MD? Who was that? Yes. Well, they varied, uh, but I can give you a rundown on how this, this actually, the whole arranging thing, uh, the, the, the whole process. Okay, now Bobby Martin, who we all know was the main arranger for Philadelphia International, got his start on a, um, a session by the Dream Lovers called When We Get Married back in the early 60s. That was the very first um, credit, I believe, that he got as an arranger. And he was the one who uh, directed the musicians in a studio and told them what to play. You know, a few years later, with the onset of the Gamble and Huff situation, Bobby got involved in that uh, deal and started arranging all the early hits for the intruders, including United, Cowboys to Girls. And he had a, a stamp, a specific groove, later on known as the Philly Groove, that was indigenous to his arranging style. Can you explain that groove? Can you give give the sure. listeners a little idea of what that was? Okay, early on, it kind of evolved. If you remember some of the early mid to mid-60s arrangements, they always had that um, 16th note horn part, like da-da-da-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-dum-dum. That was indigenous to Bobby Martin slash Kenny Gamble's collective uh, style of arranging and producing. They always had that sort of the 16th note accent thing in the horn section. And you always had um, a, a, a very flowing legato string line over that. And what started also around this time was Norman Harris was known to play the sort of West Montgomery octave style on his guitar. And Vince Montana, who played vibes, would double the line in octaves. You know, there was always a, uh, a guitar backbeat on two and four. Uh, sometimes I would do it early on. Sometimes the late, great Roland Chambers, who recently passed away, he would do it. So that was like the early uh, kind of the earlier elements of the Philly sound. Now, a lot of the, the musicians, the string and horn players in particular, well, the horn players were steeped in a, in a jazz background, you know? I mean, unlike the, the Motown guys that predated us, the Philadelphia guys had more of a hybrid of various styles. You had a lot of bebop horn players like Zach Zachary who did all the alto sax parts on all the PIR Philadelphia International sections sessions he actually played with Count Basie man you know he's he was back in there with the greats and he had that that bebop kind of vibe happening Vince Montana was is was and is a a great jazz musician he brings a lot of that uh, 30s and 40s jazz feel with him too you know and if you listen to the Philadelphia International, a lot of their albums, there's always a, especially Billy Paul, you'll hear a lot of jazz influence. You'll hear it with, with the South Soul Orchestra. You'll hear a lot of jazz run. So a lot of the musicians uh, have that inbred, you know, uh, being raised with people like Charlie Parker, who, who comes from Philadelphia, you know, that John Coltrane. You have all that, that wonderful jazz, gospel jazz element going on. Uh, you also have Earl Young with his, with, with his hard funk. You know, there's such a hybrid. Philadelphia had such a unique hybrid of styles. 
in my opinion, unlike a lot of the other regional areas noted for specific sounds, you know. It had a certain stamp that only Philadelphia had. Tom Bell originally was a member of Kenny Gamble and the Romeos, which included Tom Bell on piano, um, the late Carl Chambers on drums, the late Roland Chambers on guitar, a wonderful bassist Wynn Wilford on bass, and uh, Kenny Gamble on vocals. Now out of this group uh, came Tom Bell, who through this situation got a job at Cameo Parkway Records as an in-house arranger, uh, starting out uh, with uh, some of the later Chubby Checker records, and then he also went on the road as Chubby Checker's uh, piano player. Around this time, let's say 1966, he had met a gentleman by the name of uh, Stan Watson, who was starting a new company called Philly Groove Records uh, out of West Philly. So Tom had introduced Stan to some uh, young guys uh, from his neighborhood known as the Delphonics. They actually had another name before that. I forgot what their name was. I'll have to find out. But they were from around 55th and Master, which is in West Philly. So Tom brought them up to uh, Stan Watson's office at the time, which was at 52nd and Spruce in Philadelphia. And uh, Stan took a liking to them and uh, took them in a studio at which was at the time Cameo Parkway Studios, right, on uh, Broad and Spruce, and they recorded a song called He Don't Really Love You, which was released on a company called Moonshot out of New York. He Don't Really Love You was somewhat of a regional hit, East Coast regional hit, and that led to a, uh, a singles deal for Cameo Parkway with a song called You've Been Untrue. So right after that, the seed money w was gotten by Stan Watson to start his own label, real label, called Philly Groove. Lala Means I Love You by the Delphonics was the first record to be released on Philly Groove, and it was a smash, an unadulterated smash, and Tom Bell's first uh, gold record, certified gold record. And uh, from then on, you know, the rest is history uh, with Tom Bell, and right around 19... Right around the time that he produced the Delphonics on Didn't I Blow Your Mind, he met a young little little young Jewish girl from a German town called Linda Creed, right? Linda Creed was the vocalist of a group called Soul Brothers LTD, who were a little uh, funk jazz bar band out of Norristown. And uh, Linda was, was the vocalist, and she dabbled in, uh, you know, more than dabbled. She was one heck of a lyric writer, probably one of the best to ever come out of Philadelphia or anywhere else, for that matter. Someone introduced her to Tom, and they started collaborating on songs, and their uh, musical marriage was just a magic uh, made in heaven, man. It was just wonderful. And the, the very first song that was recorded by the team of Bell and Creed was a song called Free Girl, I Want to Be a Free Girl by Dusty Springfield on the uh, Dusty in Philadelphia album that Gamble and Huff and Bell produced back in 1970. And I was there, and the, the elation that Linda felt in the studio after hearing that, that playback, man, I could see her now just waltzing, waltzing around the studio, man, just elated to hear that song coming over the speakers. It was, it was wonderful, man. And she, uh, she was the most wonderful person, great girl, not affected by her success. Unfortunately, uh, 
you know, we all know she passed away in 1986 from a long bout with cancer. And uh, at the time that she passed away, she was number one on the charts with the greatest love of all. So that was a one heck of a way to go out, man, I'll tell you. Also, some of the other arrangers of note out of the Philadelphia scene uh, were and are Jack Faith. Jack Faith has a real kind of jazzy tinge to his uh, arrangements. You know, he's a sax player, alto sax, and who can be heard prominently on the intro to Love Won't Let Me Wait by Major Harris. That sax intro, that's Jack Faith, man. He's, he's, he's a monster. He's a monster. Still is. And uh, Games People Play by the Spinners was very indigenous of the Jack Faith style of arranging. Very good arrangement. I mean, there are some that, you know, obviously some Spinner songs that Tom Bell didn't arrange, that being one of them. Also, their version of the Wilson Pickett song, Don't Let the Green Grass Fool You, was a Jack Faith arrangement. Um, those were two prime examples. Uh, tons of tons of uh, Philadelphia International. I mean, he w- Jack was uh, also on the staff of Philadelphia International. A lot of the Teddy Pe- Close the Door, I believe, by Teddy Pendergrass. Uh, a lot of the post post nineteen seventy six Philadelphia International records. Uh, Lou Rawls, I think uh, you'll never find another love like mine. Mm-hmm. When Bobby Martin moved to Los Angeles to work with A&M, so that gave Jack Faith more work o- over there at Philadelphia International. So you, you'll find the majority, I would say, of the Philadelphia International records, uh, the hits anyway, Jack Faith had a hand in arranging. He was mm-hmm. also he was also one of the uh, copyists when, when other arrangers had to go and get their songs copied onto individual sheets from the from the master uh, charts jack faith would be the one who did that richie rome is another great musician from philadelphia his arrangements are i guess you could say fl- flourishy more sort of classical sounding his strings have a classical edge to him you know he's very good and very quick man he could he could probably arrange a whole album in one day that's how bad he is man when i say bad that's a positive bad you know <laughs> In, in the mid-70s, actually, um, there's a group called the Ritchie Family, which had a lot of big disco hits, and they named their uh, group from, uh, you know, for Ritchie Rome. That's <laughs> why they called, it's called the Ritchie Family. And they didn't, there was no name and there was no group, but when we went in the studio to do the tracks, they were, the, the tracks were done before there was a group, and the, the three girls were actually hired, just hired backing singers at the time. So that whole... Richie family thing evolved, and uh, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Now, Vince Montana, who I mentioned before as a vibes player, j- jazz arranger, came up with an idea back in 1974. He had a couple of Latin acts out of uh, out of uh, Kensington area in Philadelphia. We do have a Kensington in Philly also. He had a couple of uh, Hispanic acts that he was trying to shop, and there was a company called Katronics, uh, which was on 10th Avenue, New York. Uh, they were a distributor of Latin music. They were run by a, a group, uh, a family called the Carey Brothers. And uh, it was Kenny, Joe, and Stan. And their father, uh, also Joe, I believe. Anyway, so Vince Montana made an appointment to go shop his product one day. And they started to talking and talking about different things and ideas. And Joe Baton 
the well-known Latin uh, artist, was up there, and he had just had a, a little uh, inter- interesting record out called uh, The Bottles, remake of the old Gil Scott Heron record. Anyway, they got started to talking, and one thing led to another, and they thought, well, hey, man, you know, why not fuse Latin salsa music with soul and see what comes up? And Vince came up with the... Uh, the, the, the title Sal Soul, which was a contraction of salsa and soul. So Vince Montana gave birth to that whole Sal Soul thing, which we all know became large. And it, originally it was just a concept, Sal Soul, but it actually evolved into the record company. The very first song was called Sal Soul Hustle. Interestingly enough, it was recorded in New York at Columbia Studios. It wasn't recorded in Philly. There were like two or three songs that were done up there as an experiment. But right after that, uh, everything else uh, subsequently was recorded in at Sigma Sound in Philadelphia. And um, interestingly, South Soul Records had the first commercially released 12-inch called uh, 10% by Double Exposure. Okay, very important man. Uh, uh, Peter DeAngelis. Okay, Peter DeAngelis was uh, also a classically trained gentleman who used to take a lot of trips to Rome. He he was inspired by all the great musicians in in the in the Rome uh, Symphony Orchestra, and he his history actually goes back to the early teen idol days, where he was co-owner of a, a company called Chancellor in Philadelphia with a guy called Bob Marcucci and they had uh, Fabian and Frankie Avalon and that that kind of element over there and Peter DeAngelis was the arranger also on all those songs so then he started getting involved in R&B and uh, one of his first hits as an arranger producer uh, on, on the soul side was Hey There Lonely Girl by Eddie Holman which was recorded at a company called at a, a studio called Virtue that I talked about earlier with Weldon McDougall in North Philadelphia, it was Virtue Studios where Hey There Lonely Girl was recorded. And uh, yeah, Peter was very, very, uh, very instrumental. He's no longer with us as well. It's a shame that a lot of the greats have gone on to greener pastures. And uh, I'm sure they have a big band up there in the sky, man. <laughs> one day I'll be up there with them too and we could jam together again, man. <laughs> that would be one beautiful experience, let me tell you. If we could go back to Bobby Martin also and yes. and just talk a little bit about his background and how he came in. Certainly. Bobby Martin used to play vibes with a, a jazz band called uh, Lynn Hope, who had a brother called Billy Hope, who, who also was a jazz musician. This was in the, I believe, in the 50s. Uh, and Bobby would travel around with Lynn Hope as the uh, vibes player and sometimes piano as well it led him to a a gentleman by the name of Jerry Ross who started a company uh, called Heritage Records in Philadelphia and who he's a gentleman who signed the Dream Lovers okay there was a gentleman called Harold B Robinson Harold B Robinson had a automobile dealership on North Broad Street in Philadelphia in the basement of that particular building there was a recording studio uh, and that was the recording studio that eventually uh, recorded When We Get Married by the uh, Dream Lovers. But prior to that, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells recorded I Sold My Heart to the Junk Man and Down the Aisle, uh, down in that particular studio. That's where Bobby Martin was actually first discovered because Lynn Hope had also recorded some sides down there. And upon recommendation 
from Lynn Hope to Harold B. Robinson, Harold B. Robinson introduced Bobby Martin to Jerry Ross. Can you maybe give a list of some of Bobby Martin's uh, sort of greatest hits, the songs that he worked on? How much time do you have? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's why I say the greatest hits. It's just that, oh, oddly, sure. oddly enough, it's actually very difficult to get information on Bobby Martin. Uh, there's uh-huh. very little written about him, and, and wow. uh, so any information you can give us would be great. First and foremost, he was a wonderful man, is a wonderful man, and helped me out tremendously, and I'll get to that later. I'll start from Cowboys to Girls by The Intruders, which was his first gold record. Okay, I mean, the, the United and uh, and uh, Together were also Bobby Martin arrangements by The Intruders, which predated Cowboys to Girls, but I'll start with that one as being the first smash. So from Cowboys to Girls... Western Union Man by Jerry Butler. You had Only the Strong Survive by Jerry Butler. Most of the first two Jerry Butler albums that Gamble and Huff produced, the first one being The Iceman Cometh, the second one was called Ice on Ice, which were big albums. Most of those songs on there were Bobby Martin's. Then, as soon as Philadelphia International Records was started in 1971, uh, you had uh, You're the Reason Why by the Ebony's, which was a big, a big R&B hit. Now, in 1972, when the OJs came on board to Philadelphia International, you, you had Backstabbers by the OJs, which was a smash uh, that Bobby Martin arranged. Uh, you had most, I mean, most of that, that particular album. Now, Love Train was uh, Tommy Bell. You had For the Love of Money, Bobby Martin. All right? I mean, humongous, giant records. You had um, Love is the Message by MFSB, the TSOP, the Soul Train theme. Those records, I think, were the cornerstone Philadelphia International records. I mean, if, you had to, if you had to really pick two songs that epitomized Bobby Martin's style of, of arranging and combined with the Philadelphia sound, you would have to put uh, TSOP and Love is the Message right up there as number one and number two. Because those were the Philadelphia sound personified, man. That was it. And then it kind of went up from there. Can you give some examples from those tracks of mm-hmm. the elements that, that to you personified it, the elements he put into those tracks? Bobby Martin was a horn guy. You know, his horn charts, I guess coming from his jazz background, you could always tell his arrangements by the use of his horn punctuations. Also, 16th notes, 8th notes. Okay, for instance, Love is a Message, all right? You had this horn thing going, uh, da-dup, 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 that kind of rhythm, da-dup, da-dup. Was in, that was indigenous of that Bobby Martin slash Philadelphia sound and a lot of, a lot of other arrangers uh, copied. I don't want to say copied, but but were influenced by. There's one more person, and I should have mentioned this earlier, Norman Harris was the guitar player I talked about earlier. Now, Norman Harris came from the school of Bobby Martin also. Bobby Martin begat Norman Harris, and he also begat Bobby Eli here. (laughs) So we were students of his style. You know what I'm saying? We use that same kind of element. And Norman... Oh man, that was my buddy. That was my best buddy. He unfortunately he died too, and he he was uh, 
just wonderful. I mean, if, the, the South Soul stuff, other than the ones Vince did, all the first choice and armed extremely dangerous. And I mean, Norman was the guy that did all that stuff, you know. And, and we, we, him and I learned our style and craft from Bobby Martin. Bobby Martin was the granddaddy, the, the teacher of us all when it came to arranging. Kiss and Say Goodbye by the Manhattans, which was, was the very first certified platinum single ever was Kiss and Say Goodbye. So Bobby Martin's arranging style and his production as well, it, it was evident. And in that particular record, you had the horns that went, dum 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 Heard the news today. I can't sing, but you know what I'm trying to talk <laughs> about, you know. So he had that, that was a Bobby Martin touch, man. That was it, you know. And right after that, when, when Bobby went to, to L.A. to start working with... Uh, with A&M, he produced three or four platinum, multi-platinum albums on LTD. So if you listen to Back in Love Again by uh, LTD, you'll definitely hear the Philly Bobby Martin slash horn nuances, uh, all those horn hits that he used to use in Philadelphia that were used on Back in Love Again. I mean, they were right there, man, in your face. We Deserve Each Other's Love, for instance, and that was Bobby Martin. Matter of fact, I was in L.A. at the time in the studio when he was recording that, so I witnessed it firsthand. And Bobby worked exactly the same in L.A. as he did in Philly. Everybody loved to work with him, man. He was just great. As a matter of fact, a few years before that, and the turn of the decade going into 1970 from 1969, he had a, produced a group called the, the Continental Four, and uh, there was a little hit called Day by Day. So Bobby being their producer, executive producer, mentor, and manager, him and I actually went on the road with them uh, for a while to, to uh, promote and uh, play. We had a little kind of band that we put together for the purposes of working with the Continental Four. So that was fun. That was really great, man. We had our little station wagon, tied our instruments to the top with a tarpaulin and everything. It was great, man. <laughs> Wonderful hanging out with Bobby on the road, exchanging stories and stuff. It was great. You worked on so many sessions with him. Uh -huh. Can you describe like one session that, that particularly comes to mind, like you know, sort of from start to finish of making a record, particular song, just well, to give his his working method, to give us an idea of how he worked in the studio. On the session that produced "Kiss and Say Goodbye" by the, by the Manhattans, right? We we're sitting downstairs in Studio Two of Sigma Sound. And he, Bobby Martin had a drumstick in his hand, and he would he would use a drumstick as a baton to like you know, egg the musicians on, count off and whatever. And he was standing there, and and all of a sudden he poked himself in the eye with a drumstick as he was counting off. So if you could picture the beginning of Kiss and Say Goodbye when Blue says, "This is the saddest day of my life," and you hear me with my little guitar sounding like Chet Atkins right before that, the count off. Imagine Bobby Martin poking himself in the eye with a drumstick. But, you know, that th that actually made us feel good. It actually, I guess, gave us a little zing for the track. So the the energy level kind of, it was like 11 o'clock in the morning, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, we had to have a little bit of energy after our cups of coffee, you know. So, sure. you know, but I mean, technically, uh, what Bobby Martin... His, his, his modus operandi, so to speak, he, you know, he would come in always on time. You know, Bobby was punctual, never late, you know, and he, and he expected the same thing from his musicians. He would come in with his music already done up, uh, generally a chord chart, you know, a chord chart with uh, 
maybe little specific lines. Uh, you know, he didn't. There was nothing very specific. There were just little lines that that we could expound upon. You know, and uh, maybe a guitar line here and there. But but for the most part, I I had the freedom. Norman Harris had Norman Harris had the as I said before the the melodic uh, West Montgomery jazz kind of feel. And every time any time you heard that was Norman Harris. Anytime you heard anything else, it was me. So if you had an effect or maybe a, an electric sitar or wah-wah or fuzz, anything that was affected, it was me because I was affected. So it translated into my <laughs> pedals, you know. that's That was the juxtaposition of the two guitar players or sometimes three guitar players with the Roland Chambers. So that the rhythm section always was Earl Young on drums, Ronnie Baker on bass, the guitar players that I mentioned before on guitar, Larry Washington, also the late great. Everybody's late great, man. It's a shame. Larry Washington on congas, who was the the class clown. Larry was the class clown, man. I mean, without him, he he was the the heart and soul and the glue, the glue that held us all together, man. With his little little percussion, conga, congo, bongo, whatever stuff that he did, man. That was it. So he was on on uh, percussion. Vince Montana always played the vibes, and uh, as far as the piano and, and keyboards and stuff, it varied. Um, with Bobby Martin's sessions, it was usually a guy called Ron Kersey. Ron Kersey actually co-wrote Disco Inferno, mm. um, and um, Ron Kersey, right after he came out of uh, out of the army in 1973, was he was so good that. Uh, after playing with the first choice in their group in their band called Prime Cut, he was discovered by Norman Harris, who brought him into the the session world with us. And the other keyboard player that we used to use along with him was Carlton Kent, who we called Cotton Kent because, mm-hmm. you know, that's a long story. Anyway, so Cotton Kent was uh, oh, he was great. He he was uh, just so well versed, man. He could do anything from jazz to to barrel house blues, I mean, you name it, man. He was great. So because th- that was the non-Gamble and Huff hookup with the Gamble and Huff uh, crew, usually obviously was was Leon Huff on piano and uh, Lenny Pakula or Tom Bell on the other keyboards uh, on organ or uh, any, any harpsichord or what have you. But uh, that was generally the the mo and. Bobby was also he, he was he was great at getting the best performance out of a vocalist. I mean, his, his manner I, I can't even put my finger on it, but he knew how to work with people. He was a great, you know, psychiatrist, if you will. You know, he knew just the right things to say to to the singers to get that performance. When, when I saw him working with Jeffrey Osborne doing the vocal on "We Deserve Each Other's Love," it was magic, man. And Jeffrey came in and maybe the, he was not in the greatest mood that day or whatever that night rather Bobby Martin put him in the right frame of mind and that performance was just killer man right there mm. and then he punched in some little lines after the fact and the rest is history mm. but Bobby he's a master all the way around you know he's just a great guy and everybody loved loved to work with him I'll explain how Tom Bell works uh, it's a different kind of M.O. First of all, Tom Bell was a graduate of music of a music conservatory. He was probably the only arranger in Philadelphia that I can think that was actually a graduate of a musical conservatory. 
similar to what Juilliard would be in New York, you know. Mm -hmm. But there was one in Philadelphia that he went to. Uh, he was a, a child prodigy, Tom Bell. He was also very heavily influenced by Burt Bacharach. And if you notice, a lot of Tom Bell records had time signatures that changed, you know, just like Burt Bacharach did. He would have all these, these crazy time signatures, you know, that some people would construe as where you would need three legs to dance to them, <laughs> but some kind of way it worked, you know. And Tom was very, very adamant, I guess you could say. He would write ev all the notes out, everything. I mean, even drum music. And uh, one, a matter of fact, one day when Earl Young was doing uh, a Delphonics record, Earl was actually just starting to get into reading music because he wasn't really, a lot of us at that time weren't really that adept at actually reading notes per se. So Earl, a fly landed on Earl's music paper and Earl read the fly <laughs> thinking that it was an eighth note, you know. So Tom, Tom looked around. I mean, Tom had ears everywhere and he, he heard a certain note that wasn't on the music and that was Earl hitting the fly that was on the music paper as one of the notes so he, Tom used to say the word bub a lot you say he would add a he had a high voice that's not it bub that's not it bub you know try it again bub and by the way I was Ellsworth Bunker he had names here I was Ellsworth Bunker Larry Washington was biscuit nose <laughs> Ronnie Baker was the G bus because he thought his forehead looked like the G bus waiting on the corner and uh, and everybody had a nickname. Leon Huff was Beaver, Gamble was Gams, you know. So Bell was Bellboy. So anyway, so that was it. And Tom Tom was very adamant on having his arrangements just so. And uh, I, I was actually, I think, honored and privileged as being one of the first rhythm guys to have the distinction of having somewhat of a bit of freedom by playing something that wasn't on a music, as in Then Came You by Dionne Warwick and the Spinners had a little, like, wah-wah part in there and a little fuzz part. That actually wasn't written, and I was just messing around, and Tom Tom looked looked over in a corner with that little, like, look with his eyes wide open, like, what are you doing that for? But then he changed his mind and says, Ellsworth, let's try that. That sounds good, man. That sounds good, bub. So anyway, Bub uh, got his chance to be, uh, had his little style there, you know what I'm saying? Now, I, I, then, then I did all the uh, sitar parts, which were written note for note, like on uh, Didn't I Blow Your Mind, on You Make Me Feel Brand New, and all that stuff. I was doing, I, it was a, an instrument called the choral electric sitar, so I played that on there. Was kind of had a cardboard field, but what can I tell you? Uh, now, so, th th was that was that his his idea to 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 put that in, or did you have the instrument already? In that particular case, it was his idea. I mean, the instrument was part of the, the studio. Uh, it was in the in the back room at Sigma Sound. It was part of the studio uh, instruments. If I'm not mistaken, I think "Didn't I Blow Your Mind" this time was the first one that he tried that on. So all, all that stuff he wrote out note for note. You know, a lot of other records by other arrangers and producers, sometimes we would improvise and make up stuff. But he was very adamant on having everything just so. And he was great, man. I mean, I, Tom Bell, to me, was the consummate, consummate musician's musician. And he, he didn't let anything slip away. You know, he, he could hear everything, man, a mile away. And everything just... If you listen and compare notes and listen to everybody's style, you'll notice how Tom Bell's records are very um, more 
uh, exacting uh, than anybody else. You know, he didn't get away with any mistakes. He even did um, I Love Music by the OJs. He did the string arrangements on, which was kind of unique because Tom mainly only liked to arrange the songs that he produced. And with I Love Music, Gamble and Huff produced it, but, you know, Tom liked it, so he did the uh, the string chart on it, which was great. When you recorded all this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, how much of it was recorded like live with the rhythm section and the orchestra, or how much of it did you overdub the orchestra right. later? Okay, 98% of the time, the rhythm section was done first. Now, there have been some instances early on, and the early Delphonics, uh, starting with Didn't I Blow Your Mind, and uh, that group of sessions, which included uh, Ready or Not, Here I Come, um, the Delphonics theme, uh, um, there's another name for that one. Anyway, that stuff, interestingly enough, was done live. Stan Watson uh, wanted to try to, to do everything live and see what it sounded like so you could hear all the room spill, and it created another kind of character to the record. So we had to uh, set up the studio, the studio in a different manner at that time, but it was great. I mean, everybody in that room, and it wasn't a giant room. It, I mean, it wasn't tiny, but it wasn't big, like, let's say, a Columbia or RCA or any kind of, like, sound stage studio that was set up especially for, for an orchestra. But it worked. Also, there were some Patti LaBelle sessions uh, in, the, in the 80s on the album that included uh, If Only You Knew. That song wasn't live, but there were some jazzier ones. I forget the titles, but there were some live ones in there. That, As a matter of fact, no, not only was the music live, but she was as well. She was in the vocal booth doing her vocals. Um, we also did, uh, when you talk about live, we did an album with Wilson Pickett called Wilson Pickett in Philadelphia with Gamble and Huff that Bobby Martin did most of the charts on. And there was a song called Engine Engine Number no. 9 on there, uh, which was done live in the studio with him doing the vocal. It was just rhythm. There was no, I don't think there was any, uh, any overdubs on there. Maybe some horns later on down the line, but the essence of, of, the, the, of the feel and the groove and, and his performance had to be captured live because of who he is. And uh, it was great just him being there and it just went on for like 15 minutes, I think. It was just wonderful. You know, that's the way Pickett is, man. He's, <laughs> he's, that's why he's the wicked Pickett. <laughs> yeah, Bobby, I've got to say, I, I, I wish everyone who I interviewed could be like you, man. You are Aww. unbelievable. Radio Richard. Like, share, subscribe, even donate. Radio Richard. Be informed. Be amazed. Be inspired.